0: All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. And uh, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. And um, Lord, what's amazing is, is those words were written by Jeremiah during a time of great, great challenge. And so... We thank you that we get to learn from all that Jeremiah went through, and uh, we pray that these, these truths would go deep into our hearts and that they would um, deepen uh, our fellowship with you. So Lord, please have your way with us and guide us and lead us by your spirit, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 2. So, um, we're just going to read chapter 2 today, Lord willing, Um, which might make you say, let's see, we did chapter 1 last week, we're doing chapter 2 this week, many of you are starting to fish forward to the end, that means we'll be in Jeremiah for 52 weeks, well, maybe, maybe not, I don't know, Uh, but let me just say this. Jeremiah chapter 2, and honestly, even as I was kind of reading it and praying about it this week and, and all of this, this may sound like a, well, let me, I'll just say it. Um, this is one of those chapters that reminds us why we teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Does that make sense? You know, I look at, um, uh, if I were looking at a, at a meal or a buffet line or something like that, right, I think of, like, we just finished Colossians a couple weeks ago. Colossians, to me, is like triple-layer cake, right? I love it. It's awesome. It tastes like cake, right? Ephesians is kind of like pizza from Uno's, right? That's about this thick, right? Well, Jeremiah is kind of like asparagus. (laughs) Does that make sense? But you got to eat it, right? I mean, we want to be, you know, I had kale in my smoothie this morning. I'm just saying, right? Um, and so that's not to be a downer, right? I don't mean to say, like, Jeremiah is not triple air cake because it's all the Word of God, right? But just like our nutritional needs are, are varied, I think our spirit, you know, Jesus said what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so these are words that proceed from the mouth of God. And I think they're very valuable words. But I, I'm going to acknowledge with us all together that these words are a little bit, we've got to kind of work through them a little bit. And so if I could just encourage us to kind of, Dig in, I think there's richness in the digging in, right? Um, You know, just like any relationship, this is a relationship with the Lord. And it's not, uh, uh, I was telling somebody uh, recently, I think of like, you know, when you're like, when you're romantically falling in love with somebody, right? It's like successfully sledding downhill, right? And like you sled downhill and you say, wow, have you ever seen somebody that sleds downhill? And maybe you did it when you're a kid or maybe when you're an adult. You get to the bottom of the hill and you act like you accomplished something, right? Because you didn't hit your head on a tree or something, right? Well, you didn't accomplish it. You just went downhill, right? And so there are parts of it that are like fun uh, of this Christian life. There are parts of it that are exciting. There are parts of it that honestly are like exercise, right? And so uh, I hope that doesn't like paint a dismal picture of this book. It's an awesome book. And... I believe this is an awesome chapter, and I believe the Lord wants to speak to our hearts today. So, here we go. So, recall from last week, chapter 1, we saw that Jeremiah is writing from the time of Josiah to the time of Jerusalem's fall to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and even a little bit slightly beyond. But imagine imagine, I just can't get my head around this, he starts his ministry... During the revival of the reign of Josiah, probably, uh, probably, arguably the greatest revival in the in the history of, in the history of Judah. And, and then he just watches this slow demise, and he's got a front row seat for the whole thing. And um, that'd be tough. That'd be tough. So if we ever think that we live in difficult times, or if we live in difficult circumstances, or if we're undergoing personally difficult circumstances, just know that Jeremiah can sympathize with us. And so, so yeah, so he starts out, chapter 2, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. And so this is really Jeremiah's first sort of public sermon, if you will. Uh, you know, he established in chapter 1 that God had called him really from before he was even born. Uh, he had called him to be a prophet to the nation of Judah. And so here he is uh, carrying that act out. And he starts out by uh, declaring that this is the word of the Lord. And, and I want you to notice as we read through the, through the book of Jeremiah how many times he'll say, thus says the word of the Lord, or hear the word of the Lord. He's speaking not from his own authority. He is speaking not from his own authority. The reason I like to read the Bible chapter by v- chapter, verse by verse, is I am not speaking from my own authority. When I, sit, when I read the Bible, I can say, it's thus saith the Lord. If I get over here, you know, I get off the Bible a little bit, and I start telling you, you know, my opinion about how to um, plant a garden, right? You might think it's wisdom. You might think it's foolishness. Right? But it's my, it's my opinion, it's my stuff, it's my, uh, it might even be my conviction, right? You've got to do it this way. Uh, but when I get back to the Word of God, I can say, thus says the Lord. And it's altogether a different platform that we're reading from. And so uh, we need to have that degree of reverence for it, and uh, Jeremiah certainly did. So what's he have to say uh, to these, uh, these Israelites? He says, I remember you. The kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in the in a land not sown. And so again, I know this is an overriding theme. I want to hammer it home, Lord willing, till the day I die, that God is not primarily interested in in religious duty from his people. God is interested in fellowship from his people. God is all about fellowship. It's a relationship. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. He wants fellowship. That's why Jesus came, to die on a cross so we could be forgiven of our sins, so we could have restored fellowship that was broken by our sin. He made it all possible and continues to make it all possible, continues to, says the, the Holy Spirit continues to intercede for us. Jesus intercedes for us. We, we live this life, and it's all about having fellowship with God that God protects us, that God guides us, that he leads us, he directs us, he speaks to our hearts. He speaks through his word. And it's all about fellowship. And so, you know, when we think of relationship, you know, in a human context, we think of of marriage. And he says, you know, this is kind of like, I remember... Uh, you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, like when, you know, sort of when we were first courting or we were first dating or maybe when we were first married, right? And, you know, uh, the reality is uh, a lot of us know seasons, we'll say, times, days where maybe you've been married for a while and maybe it uh, sort of feels a little more stale than when it, you know, when it started, right? I know what I'm talking about? No, you don't. Don't answer the affirmative, right? But I've read books to the, to the topic, right? But the reality is sometimes, you know, you kind of go back to that, oh, I remember when, you know, he used to bring me flowers. I remember when he used to write poetry. Oh, I remember when she used to laugh at my jokes. She thought it was cute. I remember when she told me I was awesome. I remember that one time. We had so much fun together. Right? And so what happens when oftentimes, and let me just encourage you all, if, if you ever find yourself in one of those times, you know, it's kind of maybe a healthy exercise to go back and kind of remember that fondness. Too often, frankly, we go back and we say, I wonder what would have happened if, or I wonder what should have happened. And the reality is, we're on a journey. And I know in in my marriage, two sinners saved by grace on a journey. So are there going to be ups and downs? You bet there are. Is it ultimately up? You bet it is. Why? Because we're, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so that's the reality. But God is kind of, he's kind of doing this reminiscent thing a little bit. Here's what's fascinating. The love of your betrothal, those days, God would say, I remember those days when we had this fellowship. When you went after me in the wilderness. But most commentators would say the wilderness is a reference to the desert when they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. Now, I don't know if you have the same version I have, but my version of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is a bunch of Israelites whining in the desert, right? And God saying, Seriously? Okay, fine, I'll give you meat. So it comes out of your nose, right? And you think, Does that sound like romance? (laughs) But here's the thing even at that point, they were following the Lord. You get this? So a healthy marriage has highs and lows, right? Even in the wilderness they were following the Lord. You know, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They were following that. When the when the cloud moved, right? They picked up camp and they moved. When the when the cloud went this way, they went this way. They still followed the Lord. They had ups and downs. They had, a, they had their flesh that they had to deal with. They had all of that, but they were still following the Lord. At this point in Israel's history, in Judah's history, they have forsaken the Lord. They've, they've traded him in for false idols. And that's his burden. They've traded the goodness of God for idolatry. And they've completely forsaken him. That's altogether different than having ups and downs in the desert while you're following the Lord God. And so, now they're rejecting him. I think we have a New Testament corollary of this a little bit. If you look over to the right, all the way to Revelation chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. You may recall the context here is uh, during the revelation uh, of Jesus Christ to John. Uh, He reveals uh, messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor during that time. And one of them was to the church of Ephesus. And he says this. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and have, you have persecuted them and have... You, I'm sorry, you have, perse- not perse- you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now that sounds like a pretty cool church if we stop there, right? You guys know how to persevere. You know how to sort out... Liars and and crooks you've got deeds you've got patience you've got labor all for my sake and you've not become weary Galatians tells us don't grow weary in doing good for in due season we'll reap if we don't lose heart and so these Ephesians were that way they were doing awesome except verse 4 nevertheless I have this against you that you have left your first love. In my Bible, that word left is underlined. You've left your first love. Can I tell you what it doesn't say? It doesn't say you've lost your first love. And I like what I heard one guy talking about this. He said, there's a big difference. It seems maybe subtle, but there's a big difference between left your first love and lost your first love. Because if you've lost your first love, you don't know where to find it. Like if you've lost your keys, you know, let's say you've got an important, you know, let's say you're going to a job interview or something, you know, where that's kind of time sensitive or whatever, right? So you're going to your wedding, right? And you can't find your keys. You're in a little bit of a panic, right? Oh my goodness, where do I go? What do I do? I'm, I, feel, I feel lost. I need my keys. Well, they didn't lose their first love. They left Their first love. And here's the thing about leaving your first love. When you leave your first love, you know where it is. You know how to go back and find it. You know that you're not lost. And so, what does he say? He goes on. He says, You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. See, it's like what God is saying in Jeremiah. He says, I remember you, I remember that relationship. That, you, that we had. And so the exhortation to the people, to the church is, remember, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Back to Jeremiah. So the New Testament corollary, what's our job? When we find ourselves stale with the Lord Remember and repent. Right? We didn't lose our first love. If we find ourselves, excuse me, if we find ourselves in a time of stagnant, dry, empty relationship with the Lord, is it His fault? Never. Never. Now, that doesn't mean to be a trip, but the reality is it might mean that we need to remember where we've come from and to repent of whatever we need to repent of to go back to that place of remembrance, that, that place of sweet fellowship with the Lord. Now, is it always like, does it always feel like we're sledding downhill with the Lord? No, not always. That's okay. Is there work to be done? Is there labor to be done with the Lord? You bet there is. But I'm talking about just that, that sort of backslidden point of stagnation he says I remember you the kindness of your youth the love of your betrothal when you went after me even in the wilderness in a land not sown Israel was holiness to the Lord the first fruits of his increase all that devour him will offend disaster will come upon them says the Lord so what he's saying here is you know during that time I was your protector if somebody came against you I took him out right we kind of like that part of the Lord, right? We like for him to take care of us. We like him to protect us from our enemies, right? I mean, David wrote about that extensively in the Psalms. Then he says, "Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel." And so notice now, he's going to go on. So basically that those first 3 verses sort of set the stage for the rest of the chapter. Okay? and basically the stage is i remember when we had fellowship and now you have forsaken me and he says hear the word of the lord o house of jacob that's collectively right the nation of judah and all the families of the house of israel so that's kind of like more individual groups right so it, so much so much of what the christian life and what the scripture tells us is there's a there's a there's an aspect of our lives collectively, maybe as the body of Christ, maybe as this church itself, and then there's an aspect of our lives individually. And sometimes we can't always control maybe what goes on in our, in our world or in our country or even in our community, but we have some sort of a civic responsibility that's, you know, that's to sort out between us and the Lord. But there is another, there's another thing that's very important, and that is our individual walk with the Lord. Our individual, our individual fellowship with him that he wants to have. So he says, hear the word of the Lord. O house of Israel, the big group, and all the families, the small group of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. See there he says it again. Thus says the Lord. He's speaking from a, from a platform of credibility. Thus says the Lord. He said, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they've gone far from me, have followed idols, and become idolaters? So what did God do wrong? What, what was unjust about what God has done for them, right? So you've forsaken me. You've, you've traded me for Baal and Moloch and all these other false idols. What was it that I did that was so unjust, right? What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. So what is it, he says, that now you've traded me in for idols, Neither did they say, where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed where no one dwelt. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. And so you see this idea here from these verses, really from, from 5 through 8. God didn't do anything wrong. God didn't make them depart. God didn't give them some injustice. So what was it? What was it that made them depart to, to reject God and embrace foreign idols? I believe it was two things that much impact our lives today. Number one, the temptation to be discontent. Can I tell you this is subtle, but it's huge. The temptation to become discontent. You know, I always think about, my mind always goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? Satan comes to Eve and he says, um, he says, uh, did God really say not to eat any fruit in the garden? And she said, oh, he said, you know, all but that one. If we don't eat that one or even touch it or else we'll die. And you know the story. He says you're not going to die and all that. And in my mind as I kind of evaluate that whole situation, I think of Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, would the Garden of Eden have been pretty cool? Way. Way cool. Would they have had any kind of struggle or unmet need or anything? What did they lack in the Garden of Eden having fellowship with God in the way that humanity has never known since? What did they lack? Absolutely nothing. They had perfect harmony with God. They had all their needs met. They lived in you know, the Garden of Eden, that we can only imagine what that would have been like. And yet there's something in Eve that's like, you know, I think I need that one fruit. And it reminds me that there's something deep in the heart of human beings that is prone towards discontentment, right? You've heard me say many times before, if you've been listening to me any time, Which means you've never heard me say this. Why do we live in a world where professional athletes go on strike? Right? Do we need more money? No. No. But we always feel like, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, we always feel like, man, if I had like 10% more, I'd be done. I'd say, thank you, Lord. I'd be content. I'd have a new tractor, have a new car, I'd have whatever I need. I'd be all good. I remember Tracy and I were first married, living on student loans and love. We had, this, we had this house, it was in downtown Indianapolis, and Tracy's still teasing me about it. Had a front, oh no, I know what it was. We lived in an apartment, and I remember thinking, you know, if I had a house with like a, front porch swing, I'd be done. I'd be there. Guess what we bought? House front porch swing. You know, if I had a house at front porch swing and a cool gas grill on the back porch, I'd be done. You know what we got? Cool gas grill. And when does it stop? Uh, As of today, I don't think it has right? There's something in human beings that is discontent, period. We need to recognize it, call it for what it is, and recognize that that extra whatever will not satisfy us. That's as hard for me as anybody, honestly, but it's the reality. If it was relevant for Eve, it's relevant for me. So, the temptation to be discontent. I think there's a thing. Maybe let's picture when the when the Jewish people had had sweet fellowship with God. Let's say maybe during that uh, revival during uh, during Josiah's time. I think there might have been something maybe in those in those days where the people might have said, you know, this Passover thing's pretty cool. You know, yeah, God is taking good care of us, and you know, everybody's kind of worshiping the Lord, and it, you know, it all seems good. But I wonder what it's like over in uh, you know over there in Moab. You know, they got that that god Molech which seems really cool. And you know, they 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 seem like they've kind of got it all together. There's something in us that always wants to drift in places where we shouldn't drift. Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 2, I believe, says, "Let us take the more earnest heed, lest we what? Drift away. Be careful of drifting away based on discontentment. Did you hear me? Be careful not to drift away based on discontentment. It's a huge, huge trap. Second thing, be careful to resist the temptation to place our expectations on God and blame him when things don't work out the way we thought. Is that fair? I hope that didn't sound too convoluted. Be careful to resist the temptation to place my will on God, and then when my will doesn't work out, I blame him. What did Jesus say in the, in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. What should we say? Not my will, but yours be done. How many of us have a will? All of us. The same ones that are prone to discontentment. We all have a will. We all have a will. I love what Rich Mullins used to say. Surrender don't come natural to me. Right? It's so true. Surrender don't come natural to me. And... Contentment doesn't either, necessarily. But I gotta make a decision to be content and to be surrendered. And these people fail to do so. So what he's doing here, what Jeremiah's doing for us, is he's just sorta of painting the formula for their backslidden state, or their really their apostate state, we might say. And I think as it relates to us today, if these are things, if we can look at the road that they took and see the warning signs that were on the road that they took, and the hallmark of what does that road look like, then it helps us to be able to avoid those pitfalls. Is that fair? Yeah. So we want to avoid the, the temptation to be discontent. We want to avoid the temptation to place our, our will, our expectations on God. And there's another one. Neither did they say, verse 6, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? who led us through the wilderness. There's a, there's a third one that I think is very relevant, and that is we just, we just sometimes have a tendency to forget how good God has been to us. I hope you hear me over and over that this is not a religious exercise. This is, an, this is a, a, a recognition and a reminder that God is good and that He takes good care of His people and you say, well, wait a minute, that one time I had my will and it didn't work out. Like I no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about fundamentally. And do we go through hard times? Please, I don't want to, again, I always have to say this. I recognize that people go through difficulties, tremendous difficulties. And I, so, honestly, sometimes I hear your stories and I think, I've got, all I can do is listen and try to empathize. I've got no solution for that problem. I've got no quick answer for that problem. And I listen to some, honestly, I listen to some heartbreaking stories. I listen to some very, very heartbreaking stories. But here's what we've got to remember. We've got to remember this. Does that take away from the goodness of God in any way, shape, or form? No. No. And even for some of us, our challenges may be so difficult that we don't really fully recognize God's big picture till we get to heaven and that may be the case but the point is God is good and he takes good care of his people so avoid the temptation to be discontent avoid the dis- the temptation to place our will on God and avoid the temptation to forget the goodness of God verse 8 he goes on the priest did not say where is the Lord and those who handle the law did not know me the rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So here's you know, another piece of this uh, is that the leaders of the nation of Judah, the, their leaders were leading them astray. They were doing all this too. And they were the ones that were supposed to be pointing people to the Lord. What's my job? My job is not to point you to me or you know, how awesome I am or how well I can do XYZ tasks or anything like that. My job is, as Drew said earlier, my job is to point you to the Lord. When we worship, our job is to point people to the Lord, not to point people to ourselves. And at the risk of going off on a tangent, too often, too often, Christian leaders point that attention to themselves and that's super super dangerous and we have to be extremely guarded about that so the priest they didn't say where's the lord let's look for him those who handle the law they didn't even know him right if somebody's gonna stand up here and teach the word right would it be a good idea if he's a christian yeah like would it be a good idea if he's if he knows the lord yeah, I know the Lord, right? Y'all rest easy. I have fellowship with the Lord, right? And, I need, and, and honestly, in, in terms of preparing for what I do, probably the most important part of preparing for what I do is to, is to keep short accounts with the Lord. Does that mean I'm perfect? Not at all. But it means I recognize the seriousness of what happens when I stand here and read the Bible. James chapter 3 verse 1 says this, My brethren, let not, many of you, not let many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a what? Stricter judgment. It's a reality for teachers. And so these guys, they didn't care. The priests, those who handle the law, the rulers, the prophets, they all led the people astray. And there's a higher accountability for those people. Verse 9, he says, therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. And so now God's kind of like in the courtroom, right? He's saying, you guys have have forsaken me. Now you're serving idols. I didn't do anything wrong. You, you you, You kind of went down this path. And so now, unfortunately, it's kind of like I have to sit in a courtroom and testify against you. Can I say that we don't want to be in a courtroom with God testifying against us? That'd be a bad place to be. He says, For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently, and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit? So he's saying, Look far and wide to any nation around outside of Israel. Look wherever you want to look. Beyond the coast of Cyprus, wherever. Is there a place anywhere? where the people of that nation changed their gods for another god, right? You know what's interesting? The people of Moab, they worshiped Molech through all of biblical history. They never never wavered, right? People of Tyre, we talked about on, on Wednesday night, right? They served Baal. They never wavered. Isn't it crazy that those guys were more loyal to their gods, which which he says, which are not gods? They were more loyal to their gods, which are not gods, than the Jewish people were to their God, who was God and who is God. But he says, my people have changed their glory. What's their glory? Their glory was their relationship with Almighty God. They've exchanged that for that that does not profit. It's a sad state. Are we capable of that? Yeah. Yeah, we're capable of that. I believe when we fail to recognize the value of our relationship with God, when we fail to recognize the value of our fellowship with God, then we're more likely to sell it, to exchange it for something of far less value. I mean, it's simple. I mean, it's spiritual economics, right? You've heard me say before, again. I'm thirsty. I want to go to the store and buy a gallon of milk, right? If I drank milk, I'd go buy a gallon of milk, right? I've got, I'm about ready to reveal how often I shop. But uh, let's say I've got $5 in my pocket. What's a gallon of milk go for? two, three. So let's say it's priced at $50. I've got a $50 bill in my pocket and I've got a gallon of milk in front of me. Do I exchange my 50 for the milk? Anybody? No, why? Because this one is more valuable than that one. Now, I said I was thirsty, Right? Am I that thirsty? No, I'm not that thirsty. I'll find some alternative, right? There's, this, there's an exchange that goes on. And when we fail to recognize that we are holding on to something that's infinitely valuable, our relationship with God the Father, our indwelling with the Holy Spirit, are grace and mercy extended through Jesus Christ. The instruction of his word. All that is wrapped up in that. All that goes on in that. And we think, eh I think the gallon of milk's more valuable than that. Then we're in big trouble. These guys, they exchange the glory, that all that relation. With God for false idolatry that does not profit. He says, verse 12 Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, by the way, that can hold no water. And so you see the contrast. Again, not to beat a dead horse, but their relationship with God is like a fountain of living waters. Jesus, John chapter 7, verse 37 and 39, said this, On on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit. Our relationship with God, our indwelling with the Holy Spirit, is like living water. We have living water coming into us, and out of our lives flow living water. You want to be a blessing to the people around you? You want to be a blessing to your family? You want to be a blessing to your community, right? Love the Lord, walk with Him, and guess what? Out of your life flows rivers of living water. Out of your life flows rivers of living water, Jesus said. Now, when we try to create our destiny, when we try to overcome our own discontentment with some kind of entertainment that we might think is cool, when we try to exchange that living water for something else, right? What are we doing? We're building our own cistern. Oh, I know I got living water. I I know I got a fountain of living, like I got a, here we'll use a word picture, right? Like, you ever been where they uh, disconnected the fire hydrant, right, they're, they're flushing it out or whatever like that and it's just blowing onto the street? So I got that over here, but I think instead what I'd like to do is like chop up the rock over here so I can build like a, a, a pool that, co- that will contain stagnant water, right? Is this illogical? It's totally illogical. And this is like when I think I can do something better then follow the Lord. When I think I I can create my own destiny, and again, it's subtle. Like if I describe it like, yeah, the fire hydrant versus a rock that holds water, you're like, yeah, okay, I see that. But then as it applies to our lives, let's not forget that it's equally ridiculous to say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to be a whatever. Well, what do you want to, you know, what do you want to, well, I'll tell you what, if you bel- if, if you can, if you can work hard enough, you can make it happen. If you want that thing, you got to just go for it. What is all that? Are all those good ideas? Do we read those things in, in modern psychology books? Yeah. Do we, do we get that advice from experts? You gotta be careful about experts. You gotta be very careful about experts. The experts tell us, man, you gotta just you gotta do that thing. You've gotta go for it. You gotta make it happen. You gotta pick yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen. And yeah, there's this, I mean, there's a role for diligence in the body of Christ. But how often do we hear experts tell us, you know what, you just need to follow the Lord? And He's going to lead you. If you follow the Lord faithfully all the days of your life, He's going to lead you and guide you and He's going to weave a tapestry into your life. He's, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The workmanship word there is poema. You're like His poetry. And He's, and he's doing that. And when He's done even in the process before He's done, along the way. He's, he's fashioning this. And God Almighty is, is sanding off the rough edges of your life and he's, and he's molding you and He's shaping you into somebody that's useful his, for His kingdom. And the whole journey is, a, is so that we're blessed above and beyond all we could ask or think. So, so much so that we, are, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Which is better? That... Or me pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. It's the difference in living water and a broken cistern. By the way, this rock that I'm talking about that we're digging out, it's got a big crack in the bottom of it. He says it can't even hold water. Broken cisterns, by the way, that can hold no water. A cistern contains stagnant water. Does your life feel stagnant today? If our lives feel stagnant, it may be that we're trying to build a cistern. And if our lives seem empty, it may be that the cistern has a crack in it and there's no water there. And as difficult as it may seem, because surrender don't come natural to me, as difficult as it may seem to just settle in that place with the Lord And as he says there to the Ephesian church, remember, you've been there. I believe as Christians, by and large, what we're talking about, you know what I'm talking about. You know that experience. You remember that time. Like he told the Ephesian church, remember that time. If you feel stagnant, if you feel empty, it's not about feelings, right? But if you sense that that's where your life is going, then remember that sweet fellowship with you had with the Lord. And I would ask you, what were you doing back in those days when you had sweet fellowship with the Lord? I'll bet you a dollar you were reading your Bible. i bet you a dollar you were praying. i bet you a dollar you talked about the things of the Lord more than you talked about the stock market, more than you talked about politics, more than you talked about vaccines. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Please let that never be said of us. Please let us recognize the richness in that fountain. So is Israel a servant? Is he a homebound, homeborn slave? Why is he plundered? Israel is God's chosen people. They were supposed to be his blessed heirs right now we're bondservants of Christ i get that because we're surrendered right that's the place we we've, we've chosen to be surrendered to him we continue to daily choose to be surrendered to him but in terms of how he treats us does he treat us like slaves no and to israel is israel a servant is he a homeborn slave no he should be an heir but he's being plundered because God's protection is removed and that's why the Babylonians are going to come by the way in the context of what we're reading that's why the Babylonians are coming the Babylonians are coming because they've exchanged all the goodness of God they want idolatry and the Babylonians were famous for their idolatry and at some point in their rejection of God God will come to a point where he says you want to learn about idols here come the Babylonians. And it's not what it's cracked up to be. The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. And so, you know, when God's protection is removed, the, the, the people are vulnerable to everybody that roars at him. Also, the people of Noph and Tapanes have broken the crown of your head. So Noph and Tapanes were uh, areas of Egypt. And probably uh, this is a reference to uh, the fact that the king of Egypt killed Josiah when he went out to battle. So that would have been the, you know, Josiah, probably a reference to the crown of your head as a reference to Josiah. So, you know, that's, that's where you're at there. Have you not brought this on yourself? Have you not brought this on yourself? And again, for us, I hope, I don't want to sound like it's a trip. But I think sometimes the Word brings conviction. If so, that's, that's awesome. And I, again, acknowledge that sometimes things happen. Sometimes we go through difficulties that are just because we're in this furnace of life being purified, right? There's a big part of life and life's challenges that are just... Part of the purification system, but there's also a part that's maybe stagnant, maybe empty. And he would say, have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor, or, ta- or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? So Sihor is a reference to the Nile River. So what he's saying is, so why you go to... Uh, So maybe we're still looking for water. Why do you go to Egypt looking for water out of the Nile? Or why do you go to Assyria uh, drinking out of their river? You see this? Here's here's another fascinating principle of life. uh, Let me say it. Here's another fascinating principle of the wayward life, of the self-directed life, of the discontent life, of the backslidden life. Here's another principle. What did he tell the Ephesian church? He said, remember and what repent what do we tend to do when we're in that bad place if you will in our relationship with the Lord we make a bad decision we find ourselves in the consequence of that bad decision dealing with the baggage of that bad decision and then when the next and then what do we do next so often we make another bad decision right and one decision begets another bad decision if we fail to remember and repent. If you make a bad decision and you find yourself living in the, in the consequence of that decision, I mean, God may, we may have to deal with the consequence of that decision, and sometimes those are lifelong and it is what it is. But in terms of our walk with the Lord, if we repent, He's always there to take us back. If we make another bad decision, and I've seen this happen so many times. You make a bad decision, and then you make another bad decision, and then you make another bad decision, and it's like that's, that's all you know is how to make bad decisions. And in this case, you know, they've, they've rejected the Lord. They've walked away. The Babylonians are coming. They're kind of starting to feel the heat. The nation is in trouble. What do we do? Oh, let's go to Egypt and get some help. No. Let's go to Assyria and get some help how'd that work out for the northern kingdom? Not very well. Right? Let's go to the Lord and get some help. He says, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. And so the answer is to recognize their own sin and repent just to simply repent. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress, when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. So again, he says, you know, I've I've broken your yoke. I've burst your your bonds. Sometimes God will discipline us. Right? Hebrews talks about that. What loving father doesn't discipline his children? And God is a loving father, and sometimes he disciplines us to get our attention, to get us to repent. But then in this case, it says, then you just keep on going under every high hill and every green tree. That was sort of their their pagan ritual places. You lay down and you play the harlot. Playing the harlot is not a good way to uh, maintain a healthy relationship with the Lord. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me? Into the vine, degenerate plant of an alien vine. Now, in the interest of time, we're not going to go back and read it, but I'd like, f- if you would, make a note of Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 speaks of this loving father, loving God, that built a vineyard. He planted it with all the best grapes, he tended it. He took care of it. He built, you know, all the fortifications to protect it from outsiders. He did everything that was needed for that vineyard to produce a good, healthy crop. And that vineyard produced what he refers to as sour grapes, which means basically in that context, basically the vineyard was worthless. And then in the New Testament, Jesus carries that analogy. And he says, he talks about the parable of a landowner who planted a vineyard, you remember this, and he leased it to unfaithful uh, stewards, right? And that vineyard never was able to bear good fruit because the stewards just kept trashing it. So much so that that when the landowner finally sent his son, they said, aha, this is the heir, let's kill him, right? And so this vineyard idea carries all the way from Isaiah into the New Testament, And it's a picture of the nation of Israel. And the point is, for us, God has done all that we need to bear fruit. He died for us so we could have a relationship with him. He gives us the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our lives. He he orchestrates all of that so that we can bear fruit. He says, yet I had planted a noble vine, planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. How well can we do at cleaning ourselves up? Horrible. We can't. Zero. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses, cleanses us. He says you can use lye and much soap, but that doesn't work. How can you say I'm not polluted? I have not gone after the bales. See the way of the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways, a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire. In her time of mating, who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Now, this is kind of... It's a little bit of divine sarcasm, right? But God uses a picture here of the natural world. He's really trying to get their attention. He's using all kinds of na- examples. But he's talking about the natural world, right? A donkey in heat that wants to mate, right? It's pretty straightforward, right? We live in southern Indiana, right? The, the land of deer hunters, right? When does a deer hunter like to hunt? in what's called the, what kind of season is it called? It's called the rut. Raise your hand if you know what the rut is. All right, about half, that's what I thought. If you don't know what the rut is, the rut is that special time of year, right about the middle of uh, gun season, when male deer, the big trophy bucks, are their behavior is completely dominated by hormonal influences, right? All they care about is finding the dough. And if there's a gun pointed at them on their way to get that dough, they don't, they don't care. Right? And what happens? They never make it to the dough. Right? If you're lucky. And they're not. But what he's saying here is, you guys are so illogical. It's like you're, like, you're not even thinking. You're not even thinking. I can't talk logically with you. Again, please let us never get to that place that we want something so bad. That we're so driven by our emotions. We're so driven by our feelings. We're so driven by what I want and when I want it. Does that sound familiar to us as human beings? We're so driven by what I want and how I want it and when I want it and what I think because I think I have such a high regard for my own opinion. We're so driven by that that God can't even break through logically. It's sad. It's a sad place. We don't want to be that place. He says, withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said there's no hope. No, for I have loved aliens and after them I will go. So the unshod foot, the thirsty throat, those are pictures of slaves or of exiles. And so he says, you know, you don't have to go there. You don't have to go there. But you said, no, there's no hope. And here's again what happens in the backslidden life. We find ourselves with stagnant water or an empty cistern. And he would say, you don't have to live like that. There's running, there's living water over here. You don't have to live like that. And you say, no, there's just no hope. I can't get out of it. And again, I see this all the time. I see this all the time. People living in, in compromise, people living in despair, people living in hopelessness. And the living water is right here. But sometimes you have to, sometimes that first step is the hardest, right? Sometimes that first step is the hardest. That first step that says, you know what, this is a lousy place to be. And I think I've made some decisions that have brought me to this place. And I think I need to to repent. And I need to remember what that life was like with the Lord when I had sweet fellowship with him. And I think I need to repent. You don't have to stay in slavery. As the thief is ashamed when he's found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets saying to a tree, you're my father and to a stone you gave birth to me. For they have turned their back on me and not their face, but in their time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. So again, you know, when a thief gets found out, not because a thief repented, but a thief got caught. When the thief get, gets caught, he's ashamed. That's not repentance. That's shame. And so, in the same way, you know, the kings and the priests, all the, all the prophets, they say to a tree, You are my father. And to a stone, You gave birth to me, my my mother. Anybody here get birthed by a stone, a rock? Real high now. Any of your daddies, uh, an oak tree? Right? It's craziness. It's absolute craziness. But the life of sin, what have I said? Sin makes you what? Stupid. Sin makes you stupid. You walk away from the Lord long enough, You try to create your own destiny long enough, you fail to surrender, you fail to be content, you fail to acknowledge him long enough, and you start thinking stuff like this. Do we see this in our world today? Do we see, well, you don't want me to go off. We'll just say we see stupidity today, right? And then, in their time of trouble, they say, oh, by the way, God, can you save us? Is that going to work? No. But where are your gods that you've made for yourselves? Let them arise. If they can sa- see if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why will you plead with me? You, you all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children, and they receive no correction. I try to discipline them, but they receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. And so... Their, their false gods can't get them out of these situations. Verse 31. O generation, see the word of the Lord. How have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come no more to you. And so God is pleading for his people to repent. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. So just another illogical you know, word picture that God gives us, right? Has there ever been a bride showed up to her wedding, forgot her wedding gown, right? Oh, yeah, I need to go back to the house and get my wedding dress, right? No, nobody's going to do that, and yet they have forgotten the Lord. Why do you beautify your way and seek love to seek love, therefore, you also you have also taught the wicked women your ways, also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by a secret search, but plainly on all these things, yet you say because i 'm innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say I have not sinned, and so we 've got to acknowledge our sin when we are there when we 're in that place of of Uh, that we're not supposed to be in our relationship with the Lord, we need to recognize it, realize that we're not innocent, even if we are religious. They were very religious at worshiping their idols, but that doesn't doesn't work. 36, why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. So those guys aren't going to help. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected your trusted allies and you will not prosper by them and so hard chapter I admit it's a hard chapter God was going to bring judgment on Israel for their sin all they had to do was repent all they had to do was repent for us please avoid discontentment please avoid trying to tell God what to do Please avoid losing the awesome, amazing respect for the Lord and appreciation for all that he's done. Please don't try to dig cisterns that don't hold any water. He said to the Ephesians, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works.